nice to hear from you, Ricky Lee Jones, uh, somebody I've been listening to for oh so many years. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you bet. Um, well, gosh, Ricky Lee Jones, um, you are a singer, songwriter, author. I have your book right in front of me, actually, which I purchased quite a while ago, called Last Chance Texaco, a musician, um, and you've won a couple of Grammys, a couple of nominations, or more than a couple of nominations, 17 albums in four, four plus decades of performing. Um, the Duchess of Coolsville, and I am, I'm very honored to be talking to you today. Thank you. All right. You bet. <laughs> well, gosh, you you are continuing on. Uh, you've seventeen uh, albums happening, and you've got a brand new one coming out in April and end of April. It is called Pieces of Treasure, and was recorded last spring with Russ Teitelman, who was uh, part of the duo who produced my first two records. Um, it's a brief and beautiful, sensual, mm-hmm. tongue-in-cheek interpretation of songs that uh, other people have done really well. <laughs> uh, and I've listened. I've, there's two have been released right now, Just In Time and September Song, and they're absolutely, as you said, all those things, elegant, uh, sparse, gorgeously instrumented, um, the one with vibraphone, absolutely gorgeous with your voice. Um, I mean, it's really, uh, they're a treasure, as you said. And, and, and that must recall uh, pirates, pieces of treasure. Well, I thought, you know, th- I don't know if you've seen the cover, but the cover is a pretty iconic picture of me when I was 23 years old. Um, my first photo shoot, uh-huh. this picture's never been published. But uh- I thought, well, even though there, it, there's... Um, the the sexuality or boldness of the photograph doesn't represent the subtleness of age, but nevertheless, there's an iconic feature to the photograph and the music that cannot be denied. So mm. um, I feel like a woman who's found her power mm. and knows it, is not afraid of it, and uh, and. Um, You know, it took a lifetime, but I feel like I'm finally wonderfully happy to be alive and singing songs. (laughs) Well, that's some of the energy in this music. I think that that just because you you're you know you might age out of a nine to five job, you don't age out of life. uh You don't age out of art. You might find more sensuality and joy once you're um, 60 years old than you had in the years before. And I haven't used this kind of thing to promote the record, but it's part of the record. You know, everybody Uh in there is is pretty old and they do outstanding work. So um, there you are. Yeah, it's... It's gorgeous, and you have a really great ensemble of musicians that uh, that Russ brought together in New York City. That's right. Yes, he did. Uh, Mike Produced Marinari up. on vibraphone. Yeah. 84 years old. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. Well, he knows how to play the vibraphone. <laughs> no doubt about that. Uh, you've got Russell Malone on guitar and Mark McLean on drums. Rob 
Monsi on piano, and then you've got a bass player, David Wong. And it's just, and as you said, it's so sparse and it's so subtle, and it's it's it really conveys the essence of the words and how your voice uh, puts meaning into them. And I guess there's a lot of emotion in that in this album. There is a lot of emotion. I think um, it's not hard to find to make any story your own. I mean, if you just have one line, like uh, you had words with him, and your future's looking dim. Mm. Even though that song has been dismissed for many years, that's a powerful. Um, line to to base your interpretation, my interpretation from. So, I found a way into every song, and you know, it's been a, a broken-heartedly beautiful life. Mm-hmm. And whenever you experience me, whenever I experience a joyful thing, it o- often aches. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> almost like it hurts to see so much wonderful beauty. I think that's part of every word I say. So I I wrote down that I was flirting with the microphone because (laughs) I think that's really true. I I haven't changed inside at all from Mm -hmm. the girl that I ever was. So Mm -hmm. she's she's a little bit of a seductress, but (laughs) also kind of funny and... uh, and I think all that's there in the, in the depth of the thing. And the guys left so much space for me. And that's very important for a singer, to have Sorry. space. Yeah, they left so much space for me that it's a kind of intimate experience. It's listening. Sorry, hold on. Somebody's message is calling me. Call you later. All right. There we go. <laughs> All right. Um, well, you can even hear you kind of sob, and it's all in the game, yeah. which is. Uh, well, I can kind of sob. I can You broke sob. down and cried? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Happened in a few songs, you know. Uh-huh. Um, it, it was just so wonderful and overwhelming to complete the song and you can tell when you've got it and Mm. you know the closest thing which is nothing like it but the closest thing to the intimacy of it would be like making love Uh but you're with five guys (laughs) and they're watching everything you do listening to every note and they're all responding Mm. so this kind of will stand and respond to one another um, it's just I, I don't even know how to explain it and and I think it's lost in many ways in so much music now mm-hmm. that's created by one person in a studio mm-hmm. this thing of, of engaging with other people um, cannot be uh, underestimated underestimated it, it's a powerful part of music I think so you were together with these five guys for five days in New York City uh, in, in a room and, and put this album together? We we got the basic tracks. It, it was going so well that sometimes we got three songs in one day. And these are mm. three songs we used on the record. So one song, two songs, three songs. 
I'd say we got um, the bulk of the record. <laughs> couldn't just quit then. Mm-hmm. But then we uh, we had booked another week. So we tried some more songs. and um, But it was extraordinary to us that we got so much so quickly. Yeah. Well, it is it's, it is amazing, but of course uh, you made it very simple, uh, and that was the purpose. I mean, to, to really bring across the lyrics. And I'm curious, you're such a prolific songwriter. I mean, 17 albums and all some covers. You've done several cover albums like Pop Pop or Girl or Volcano and a couple others. But um, you've written most of your songs. Now, how did you come, why did you choose these particular songs that felt like they were personal for you? You know, any album is is a thing of its time. You don't plan the song list for years and then it's finally fulfilled. It it happened between Russ and I. So he Uh said, I think you should do these three songs. I said, I think I should do these three songs. So Uh we just go back and forth. And whatever songs seem seem relevant for for this time at my age, mm-hmm. that I can you know, he wanted to do my funny Valentine, which was a big song for me in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And um, but I don't sing that way anymore. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of drama and high notes and the and the drama of youth. But that's not what I do now. I, I keep it contained in a little thing. And I just thought, let's leave that where it where it is. It, it belongs there. It's a good song, but it's not the song I want to sing now. Mm-hmm. And those are big life decisions. You know, they don't sound big, but they're big life decisions to go. We'll leave that where it was, and, and we'll go in a new direction here. Well... You, I mean, you pick some of the great songwriters, Julie Stein, Betty Comden, Harold Arner, Ar- Arlen, uh, Johnny Mercer, George and Ira Gershwin, uh, Jerry Van Heusen. I mean, these are classic uh, uh, American songbook songwriters. They sure are. I think Cole Porter might be in there, too. Um, and I love that you're saying their names, you know. So so often now, you know, pop singers just sing the song. Uh, mm. But the but the writers mattered, and they um, do. For so many years, um, the singers had nothing to do with writing the song. It wasn't until the phenomenon of Bob Dylan writing all his own songs that it, that then it was like a command you had to be a singer songwriter if you were going to have any credibility mm-hmm. i was thinking of singers like linda ronstadt who are great singers and and uh, deserve as much of our respect as any singer songwriter because ultimately they're the one bringing the message to you mm-hmm. so um I love both, you know, a good singer-songwriter, Bob Dylan is like a a shooting star, but it's not a greater artist than Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. I think that we just got to make room, and I I get why in 1966, you know, journalists wouldn't believe that passed behind, but but now we have a a great American tradition of singing and singer-songwriters and songwriters who bring their songs to great interpreters and I get to be part of it before I go. You do. You're one of the great songwriters. You've written uh, some amazing music over the years. Um, 
uh, and uh, as I said, you've had at least seven, seven Grammy nominations for your work. But um, you're basically a poet. You're a writer, and and I think when you started out, I mean, you're you're writing your own music. And was it Lowell George picked up on Easy Money and decided to record it himself? That was a big honor for me to have that guy um, say, "I'm I'm going to have your song be my single." Mm. You know, for those who might not know, Lowell George wrote "Willin," which was a banner. And may still be. Um, he wrote really beautiful songs in the in what they called what would that be folk rock? They called that uh, back then. But it mm-hmm. to just oh they call it Americana now. They're always oh right Americana music. right. So a gentle ballad about uh, never giving up and going back and driving your truck. Down <laughs> Yeah, I think Linda so, Ronstadt had covered that too. I mean, oh, yeah. she's saying they were good friends, so I'm sure that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, that kind of opened the door for you, didn't it? Uh, him covering <laughs> "Easy Money" when all of a sudden somebody realized, oh my goodness, this woman can write songs. Well, the real story of that is not exactly true. Um, he came to hear "Easy Money," and the folks back at Warner Brothers said, "I don't know if I should tell this, but." So, does she have anything else? And he said, nah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Russ Titleman, why did he say that? I don't he said know. he wanted to keep it for himself. Oh, gosh. So, um, <laughs> I got discovered just because it was destiny. You know, I, I um, we sent a, a little tape of my songs out to three record companies and said, we're going to do three shows. Come and check her out. And by the third show, I had a record deal. And that, I got to tell you, though, I was homeless. I really started that process. So it was such a dramatic, I mean, it was so dramatic that, it, that as I write about it and think about it today, it feels like destiny. It feels like I, I got on the right escalator. <laughs> and once I was on it, I, I, you know, I didn't get out till I got to the second floor. Um, <laughs> it was destined for it was, a while. Well, it was there. sheer talent too. You, you've got to give your, yourself a lot, a lot of credit. And luckily, you wrote it all down in Last Chance Texaco, your memoir I from did. 2021, which has gotten so many rave reviews. It's a beautiful book, and um, you know. I had to be brief because I just didn't want it to be too long. I wanted it to be about 320 or 340 and, um, pages. But there are so many great stories <laughs> to tell still. The, the summer of hitchhiking, 1969, or <laughs> arriving in Venice, California in 1974, or any of the, you know, just going in for a closer look at any of these stories. Because they're also the stories of our lives. Um, mm-hmm. What we did that have come and gone, like the hitchhiking thing, or um, or in the 1970s as as the music of the 60s that was political fell away into fashion music. I'm mm. talking about David Bowie and all the great artists who came <laughs> with fashion, all and right. then eventually that falling away into the anti music of Nirvana. 
just watching the whole fantastic story of music at the bottom of it all is a great songwriter. You know, mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain is a great writer and David Bowie was a great writer, whether or not, you know, he needed to put a, a lightning bolt on his head. But the lightning <laughs> bolt is what people today think is the coolest thing. So you never know what the future is going to make out of you. All you can do is just keep slugging away. Well, speaking of David Bowie, of course, you covered Rebel Rebel uh, yeah. and Traffic from Fair Paradise, and he said it was his favorite cover. He did. He was. It was one of the best messages I've ever gotten. And uh, the band that he had when, when he passed away, that fantastic little jazz band, the pianist told us that he asked David, what's your favorite cover? And David said... Ricky Lee Jones. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Cool. <laughs> I mean, wow. Well, Ricky Lee Jones, you are certainly amazing and people uh, covering your songs for sure. Uh, by the way, I'm speaking to Ricky Lee Jones, a brand new album coming out end of April called Pieces of Treasure. Um, and, of course, you have your memoir called Last Chance Texaco. Um, I'm just curious. I, I love this book. Um and it has pictures, which I love. Uh, and it really, the book, what was the purpose of writing the book now in your life? Um, I'd actually been writing it for 10 or 12 years. I started the story about my mother a long, long time ago. I, I needed to tell their story. I thought that our family stories, the way our family lived, whether or not I was famous, would make for great reading. Mm-hmm. And that was my hope was to write a, a story that people would go this is more than the memoir you know of a rock chick and, <laughs> um, and more than that um, my family it was a personal thing be, between us the dead and me I just felt they I owed them even though I didn't meet them I could feel them around me, oh, and wow. I wanted to tell the story of, uh, there's a paragraph in there about, I think, the Ohio group, and, and I said, you know, they traveled so far to get, you know, in the 1800s, they had no running water, a diabetic mm-hmm. who has to use the same needle over and over again. I said, they combed their hair with a wagon wheel, and now they're just dust just to whisper down your back. Mm. And I needed to do that because that's what becomes of all of us. Mm-hmm. We have, we get so entrenched in our lives, we must remember the bigger picture, that we're part of, of the word being spoken and not, you know, not get so hung up in, in what's going on. So I wanted to tell you that there was a vaudevillian, a little boy who lost his leg on the railroad track, and then he became a famous dancer, and then he died of TB. Then his father, I mean, then his son drove around, you know, rode railroad uh, freight trains and drove around America with a little girl in the back who became a famous singer. Hmm. And then she did this. And, and here is the story of American people. Wow. Because all of them are still pioneers. You know, we're still, we're still going west. 
in our way. Mm-hmm. I don't know about Lincoln, but <laughs> we're still going west, as, it, it, inside anyway. And I say, I love Europe. I've, I've lived in Europe, but Europeans don't have this. Mm-hmm. They have a home, and they stay in their home. Mm-hmm. But we have this spirit that just keeps driving us forward. And, um, and anyway, that's been my life and my career. Well... And, as you say, it's chronicles of a American troubadour, and you truly are a troubadour. And I think you great great homage to your grandfather, Pegleg Jones, with your album cover for your signature album, uh, Ricky Lee Jones. Yes, that's right. <laughs> well, it's pretty much, if you look in the book, there's a picture of him, and he's pretty much smoking the cigarette like you do on your yes. album cover. It was so I don't know if I, you know, I couldn't have arranged that picture because the photographer just took it. But I thought, wow, <laughs> that's pretty crazy. Yeah. And I don't, I had one of my dad as well, all with the same kind of pose of leaning down, hmm. one eye squinted, smoking a cigarette. Who are we? <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, you're carrying on your family tradition. It's absolutely wonderful. And the cover of Last Chance Texaco, you're doing a, typical Ricky Lee Jones uh, stance with the beret you're leaning against the car and cars and automobiles really have a big uh, place in your in your book don't they uh, it, yeah in the book for sure in my life a little bit um, <laughs> that was a 1957 Lincoln that I mm. that I it was like the first car I bought myself besides the Orange Vega um so it was a big deal to me that that beautiful Lincoln. And, oh, it's gorgeous. Um, that was one of my. That was a photo thing again. I think that same girl who I thought took the uh, same woman who I thought took the the cover of the uh, treasure. But um, so I'm very young in the in those pictures. Twenty three. Yes. Um, the book is full of family pictures, and um, I, I wished I could have put put more in but th- there's a lot of great pictures in there of, of, of that that are connected to stories I told as well as just bitching pictures from vaudeville of the whole vaudeville troop seated at a table and I think they should be in the Smithsonian oh. they're amazing photos yeah absolutely well you know some of the praise for your your book um, from the New Yorker a master songwriter of songwriting every word she writes and sings seems earned her songs are cunning and serious or playful and exuberant but always carefully made now that that sounds just perfect for ricky lee jones yeah <laughs> thank you well i've been as i said i've been playing your music on the radio since 1979 i've been doing radio since That's 1977 fun. and uh i've followed your career thank all you. these many years um we're pretty much the same age, so I certainly understand what you're talking about. About you're the same girl inside, but outside, you know. <laughs> you you know. Yeah, isn't a bit. it weird when you hit fifty and people start <laughs> looking at you differently? Like, what is what's happening? What is it? Um, <laughs> but it, being a woman in our culture, children, male or female, men, everybody responds to how we look. Mm-hmm. So we learn at a young age that um, we're either going to make that matter or not. And um, 
So yeah, as I noticed as I hit a, a less procreative age that I got waited on last at mm. the Starbucks. <laughs> oh no. What is going on? I'm telling you, that's not right. It's Ridley <laughs> Jones. It's hard to be invisible. Oh, but, um, yeah. You know, that came and went and I just went what what you have to do when you when you feel kinda angry or irked is is go the opposite way and try to be generous and mm. be even kinder than you would have been. It, it's amazing when you resist your instinct to battle on behalf of yourself. It's hmm. amazing what wonderful things happen um, hmm. when you go, oh, that person, I guess he's kind of flirting with that girl and <laughs> going on a date, so he doesn't even see me here. And so huh. I'll be really not, yeah, your well, best self as much as you can. Well, it's interesting. I, I think you've influenced so many women who are on the scene today. And I think you made that very clear when you were on the epic series Women Who Rock, which I watched all four episodes of that. Um, uh-huh. I think I think it made it very clear that uh, you started down that path and so many women realized they didn't have to fit a stereotype. They could be themselves. They could be incredible musicians. They can write their own songs. Uh, they can be who they are, and they can be strong. I think for a while it really mattered to me that people didn't know what impact I'd had when I was, you know, number one. But it's not as important to me now. I thought um, there must be something else missing, and that's why that matters. Mm. But it wasn't that. It was that history was being written by people who weren't there, mm-hmm. who were shaping it in such a way to suit whatever um, angel or devil they were serving. And I went, wow, I've lived long enough to see that history is a big fat lie. <laughs> and so I started a little bit talking about what I'd done, but you got to watch it because it can really sound like you're you know it can be unseemly but sometimes it's the only way to say wait a minute you know this is not the whole story Uh i was also there there were the oranges are not the only fruit there (laughs) there were a lot of other fruits there and um and they they had an impact so yeah big impact Uh, and interesting even impact of course every day every day impact you wrote uh probably your, your number one song Chucky's in Love it was a true story about Chucky Weiss who actually died recently I think he died a year or two ago a couple of years ago there was kind of a true story I mean he was not in love with me I made that up but <laughs> they were real characters they did they did really exist and they did have a do not disturb sign on the door <laughs> But I made up, uh, I just made it up like a Damon Runyon short story, you know. Well, you have that freedom to take reality and kind of twist it around and make a great story, which you are a storyteller. That's right. Well, that's right. (laughs) And one of the best. Now, I'm curious, just curious for me, um, Back in the day, back in 1979, the early 80s, there weren't a whole lot of women out there doing the kind of stuff you're doing, probably hardly anybody except 
there was Joni Mitchell, and for some reason, you were compared to her a lot. Now, why do you think that was? I think it was totally sexist. I yeah, think I think so, too. We looked alike. You know, we both had kind of buck teeth and long blonde hair. Yeah. Um, so I think it was mostly that. If I'd had a black hair, they wouldn't have done it. But also, there weren't very many women, um, you know, multi-instrumentalists exactly. um, writing songs. So the subtleties of, you know, that I'm writing more rhythm and blues or jazz, and, and she's more folk didn't matter then because there are only like two or three women. So right. going to compare Aretha Franklin or Joni Mitchell. Oh, I'm going to compare to Joni Mitchell. Uh-huh. Why do they have to compare you to anybody? I don't know. But um, I would have compared me to a man because my music was a lot more like, say, Van Morrison than Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And um, people didn't really know Laura Nero, who I would talk about a lot and say, "This is who oh. I listen to." Oh yeah. But um, but yeah, they they did that most of my career. It was kind of hard. Mm-hmm. But I finally, you know, what I felt was they're trying to make us into one super blonde bucky <laughs> girl. <laughs> and say that the one did everything because oh. um, they just don't want to let women in. So right. um, that that was how it seemed to me, yeah. Well, interesting how you started, you were already mixing up the genres. You were playing jazz and R&B and pop and, and soul. I mean, you, you didn't stick to one format. That wasn't really your style. Well, and um, at first I didn't do that on purpose. It was just, um, I had so many kinds of, you know, I was a jazz standard girl and Chucky's in Love is kind of coming out of a Motown-y kind of shuffle thing. And and clearly, you know, there were uh, ballads that, that was kind of um, roughly out of um, Leonard Bernstein or something. So the the combination of things I did during uh, coming into the the force of music when that disco ruled and disco ruled and um, mm-hmm. what else ruled? Mostly disco. So um, new wave was trying to happen, but so. I did want to make the point um, in a very public way, and I was successful enough that I was able to make points back then, and, and people heard them that that there were many kinds of music, and um, and not just rock, and not just uh, disco. 